For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what does the Tucson Jewish Museum have in store for a new season of exhibitions and events? Listen to Barbara Elfbrandt's recollections about the beginnings of the peace movement in Tucson. Meet Linda D. Addison, a renowned Tucson poet and author, who will talk about crafting stories from both darkness and light. And Stories That Soar offers the inspiring tale of Andrew the Rapper. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Tucson Jewish Museum and Holocaust Center provides a vital connection to history. Located just south of downtown in Barrio Viejo, it was built around the first synagogue established in the Arizona Territory years before statehood. Joining me now are Lori Shepard, the executive director of the Tucson Jewish Museum and Holocaust Center, and Ori Tsamerit, the programming and education director, to talk about the launch of their new season of events. I first asked about the significance of a fall season for an organization that is open throughout the year. Even though we're here year-round, we want to kickstart things again in the fall. The majority of our visitors are um, students on docent-led tours. And so when we think about a programmatic year, we think about what those students saw in the last academic year and what they're going to see in this forthcoming academic year. Our biggest change is our new core exhibit, um, which will be uh, Judaism and Intimate Perspective. And I think that really sets the tone for what um, I feel like I, you know, really see as a a working kind of vision for the museum. And, you know, something that we're trying to do with that exhibit is sort of expand notions of, of what Jewish identity is and to sort of walk the line of making both Judaism accessible to our majority non-Jewish audience and the multiplicity of of Jewish identity and Jewishness. What's so wonderful about this Judaism, an intimate perspective, is it builds on the way that we already share the narrative. We don't just give chronological dates and, and historical facts. We tell the story of the Holocaust through the eyes of the more than 270 Holocaust survivors who made Southern Arizona their home. And we call that intimate histories. For example, we just got from one of our community members an Italian Jewish cookbook. Um, and so something that, you know, anyone's grandmother might have that, but specifically tailored to reflect the balance of kashrut, of, of uh, dietary restrictions in Jewish law. Things like summer camp apparel that specifically relates to Jewish summer camp, which is this long, you know, incredible tradition and Jewish American life. I I myself uh, went to one on the Oregon coast. Um, And so you'll find things like that. Um, And you'll also find, you know, this sort of um, beauty and differentiation that uh, Jews have etched into Judaica, into Jewish ritual art. We have uh, Shabbat uh, candlesticks present. And so, you know, you can sort of see how someone could design those and uh, play with the the shape while still meeting the basic ritual requirements there. And so the exhibit will really kind of uh, showcase the the way that um, Judaism manages to sort of uh, remain malleable even as it's, uh, you know, this beautiful tradition going back, you know, thousands of years. Lori, to what extent do you think staying in touch with these ceremonial objects 
helps to ground Judaism for modern generations. So when we think about what we do here at the museum, we're preserving the past as a way of creating a path into the future. And that is so important because who we have been, it is who we will become, whether that's Jews or Christians or Muslims, maintaining those traditions and being a place that not only maintains the traditions, but then helps introduce new people to those traditions is such a way forward for all of us. As we look at the calendar of the coming months, what are some events that you want to highlight, Lori? We've got some wonderful events coming up this fall that we're very excited to be sharing with the community. A new offering that we have is the Lakin Lecture Series on anti-Semitism. So what we've seen is that anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic acts are the highest they've been since the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, started tracking them in 1972. So what we're trying to do is think about this as a community. So we're kicking off our first series um, on Sunday, August the 27th, and we will have Arno Rosenfeld with us. He is a, a journalist an amazing investigative reporter with The Forward. And Arno will be talking about how do we define anti-Semitism so that we can battle anti-Semitism? How do we truly understand what it is if we're going to fight it? And then we're going to follow that up on September 28th, and that's a Thursday, with a panel discussion of local leaders. What does anti-Semitism look like here at home in southern Arizona? Sunday, October 22nd, we will host Ben Friedman. He's an internationally acclaimed author. And what Ben has done is he's looked at movements like the pride movement in the LGBT community, and he's brought that forward into the Jewish community and said, how do we learn from what other communities are doing and bring pride back in to our own Jewish culture and lives? Something that we've uh, had in the works for some time now, and we've been uh, sharing it with the, the public as our band book club. Uh, and that's something that we feel very strongly, um, both for uh, historic and for uh, ethical, moral reasons that books should not be banned. And so what we chose to do is focus on a few select titles that have been banned or uh, have been up for banning uh, across the country, and we're trying to bring a, a different approach to, to engaging with that text and what this text banning means, essentially, for, for students and for the public everywhere. Um, and so, so far, we've done three. Uh, we started off with a panel covering um, Art Spiegelman's Mouse uh, graphic novel, and then we went on to uh, Beyond Magenta, which is a photo book uh, with interviews uh, with six trans and non-binary teens. Uh, and it's from quite a few years ago and still very, very uh, pertinent. Uh, and then just uh, last month now, uh, it's August, uh, we did uh, Howard Zinn's uh, People's History of the United States. Um, and for our next few titles, we'll be covering in September, uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved. And we'll be doing Sandra Cisnero says, A House on Mango Street, in uh, November, I believe. And then we'll finish it off um, appropriately, I think, with uh, Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. 
Some people may take a casual look at that list and see Toni Morrison and Sandra Cisneros and say, well, what does this have to do with Jewish culture? I don't understand the connection. So much of what the history of this museum is and and we focus on is how do we reach a greater community? How are we reaching out and supporting. Um, There's another organization, and the president of that organization, Jewish organization, says, we don't help them because they are Jewish. We help them because we are Jewish. And it is a philosophy that we at the museum also follow. So when we think about our band book club, what we're looking at is the human side of it. So even in our our core exhibit, we have an exhibit titled Anti-Semitism and Exclusion. We also look at what are the other forms of exclusion that are happening and how can we as a whole community fight them? So that can be LGBT, it can be segregation. We have some folks who talk about segregation in Tucson in the 40s and 50s. It can be focusing on what it means to be trans in the border. What does it mean to be a refugee? How do we put these Jewish values into all that we do? How do we make sure that we're not just serving our own community, but the whole community. My guests were Executive Director Lori Shepard and Programming and Education Director Orid Samarit of the Tucson Jewish Museum and Holocaust Center. A link to the schedule of upcoming events is on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. One mission of Special Collections at the University of Arizona Libraries is to collect and preserve the stories of Tucsonans. Barbara Elfbrandt's core beliefs were forged during the civil rights era when folk song sing-alongs helped to build a community on peace and equality. Elfbrandt has been a true social justice warrior ever since. In this edition of Archive Tucson, produced by Angus Anderson, we'll hear Elfbrandt share memories of the true origin of the peace movement in Tucson. In December of 1960, we were organizing a peace movement here and we had our first peace march. I think we had about 100 people and we marched from, um, I would say, Randolph Park area all the way to the entrance of Davis Monthan. And the basic issue in those days was ban the bomb. We continued what we called a vigil at the base from that day, every day until Easter. And I would go from school. I would try to get there, you know, several times a week. I don't think we were big enough to make a lot of difference, but I think we were trying to. (laughs) We were trying to get a message out that nuclear weapons were fatal to the human race. These were the days it was becoming very clear that we were in a race with the Soviet Union and, you know, the, the whole Cold War thing. It's not that we got much publicity, but it certainly seemed to be out of the ordinary. It was kind of a strange thing to do. It's just not so much that way anymore, you know, people get out in the streets. But in those days, you just didn't do that. It was controversial to wear a peace sign. I remember thinking very seriously whether I was going to do that or not because the teacher probably shouldn't do that. You know, you see it all over now, but I remember the history. You know, that peace sign was, uh, you know, was not acceptable. The head of the police department here in town was a man by the name of Garmeyer. Very, very conservative. 
he was right out of the McCarthy era of the 50s. There was little doubt about it. And we had some meetings, you know, planning this, and he sent a couple of his undercover people to the meeting. I felt so sorry for them because they, you know, we were dressed in shorts and, you know, sandals and, you know, things like this, and these two guys show up in suits and ties. <laughs> they came through the door, and it was so obvious who they were. I could, Sometime during the course of the meeting, they were asked to leave. I can still remember that. Well, every time we had any demonstration, one of the men from the police department was sent to watch over us. One day, they had a loudspeaker on the police car, and they evidently turned it on by mistake. And we heard everything they they said. (laughs) It was, uh, who was that? Who's just to come? And they said, oh, just a minute, I have a picture of it. (laughs) Here. And, and we were across the street listening to all of that. In 1963, a picketing campaign was staged against a Tucson cafe called the Pickwick Inn over discrimination. The Pickwick Inn was rather important because the Pickwick Inn was local and sort of stood out because they were adamant about not integrating It was something that brought the community that was most concerned about that together. And I think that those people who were supportive of that movement in Tucson probably at one time or another showed up at the Pickwick Inn. I I know that we picketed at least for two weeks, and it may have been longer. It was down on the Benson Highway, so it was a place where people going through and tourists and everyone stopped. So... I think it was an important place to uh, to make our point. There were probably 20 to 30 of us that would go down. I can remember going down almost every day when it was going on. It was interesting because there was a really integrated group of picketers. I can still remember that a couple got married who met at the <laughs> the Pickwick Inn. This was a mixed couple. <laughs> but two things I kind of smile at as I think back on it. One was that the Tucson police sent down a policeman to be there, I think really to watch over us. And it was probably one of their few black policemen. And I always felt very supported by the police <laughs> in that in that effort. Uh, The other thing was that um, one of the people who picketed fairly regularly was J.C. Fowler, who uh, was the priest at St. Michael's and All Angels. He'd lost a, a leg in World War II. He was always outspoken and very well known in the community. And he had a confrontation with the owner J.C. stood in the um, doorway and put his wooden leg there, and they tried to close the door. I'm sure they didn't know he had a wooden leg. (laughs) But at any rate, I think we were marginally successful, but uh, to tell the truth, their business fell off (laughs) considerably. I, I think that was really a matter of lots of stress for that business, and it could have been. That's one of the reasons why it eventually disappeared. The storyteller was Barbara Elfbrandt, 
recorded and produced by Angus Anderson for Archive Tucson, an oral history project of special collections at the University of Arizona Libraries. You can find more stories from Tucson's past at archivetucson.com. How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend Song from their open mouth makes you sleep. Upon waking, you feel empty and sad. There's a mark of ash on your chest where your heart should be. Their eyes remind you of hunger, but everything you eat has no taste. Your eyes reflect flames in the mirror. You stare at the sun, but it doesn't hurt. They ask you for the time, but you tell them when you were born. Suddenly, you can't remember your mother or father. Your other friends stop calling you. Their faces flash as missing online. You change your status to possessed on your social network. When you walk past the church with them, you feel sick and have to cross the street. They joke about being allergic to old buildings. You laugh with them. One day you blink and you have no breath. Memories of your life fade like a dream. All you see is red sky, ash under your feet. And in their burning arms, you cannot cry. That was Linda D. Addison, a prolific poet and author whose work has appeared in many anthologies and short story collections. She describes herself as an organic writer. More than planning her stories, she wants all of her words to come from the heart. Addison has been recognized with a series of five Bram Stoker Awards beginning in 2001. She was the first African-American to receive this honor. Because her writing often deals with mature themes instead of shock, I started by asking her how she feels about the term elevated horror, one of many labels currently applied to the genre. The first thing I thought is how we humans love words, how we love to take something and split it into something else over and over again by using new words. The idea doesn't have any deep meaning to me because the earliest movies that I remember watching like Frankenstein and later on Rosemary's Baby, I mean, the definition of what people think of as elevated means what? It has a storyline. It has meaning. It maybe has some statement it's making about humankind. And I don't know what Frankenstein is like one of the biggest statements about humans <laughs> to me. So I don't really see that as something that um, I would define myself by unless that would help people buy my book because that's the main thing I care about. <laughs> that's very pragmatic <laughs> indeed. I think that there's an element of transgression in a lot of the best horror and I think it's a way to help understand the world. Watching a good horror film, a well-made one, can sometimes teach you lessons about things like death and sex that you're not going to get anywhere else. That's my feeling. So I think that there are people who need it to make sense of the world around them. Well, I think almost all horror comes from something inside the person creating it. And how that message is coming through really depends on what the person's feeling is 
when they're creating it, right? So my horror, I've always defined as psychological because I don't do a lot of blood and guts. I mean, I've, I have done like occasional poem about vampires or something, but there aren't real, the real monsters in mine are human. Even when it's something that's like a poem about something evil, something coming through, it is always connected to something for me also. So I think that's very true. And for each person um, reading it, I, I did um, the keynote speech at uh, StokerCon last year. And I didn't prepare it ahead of time because I don't do that. I do everything organically. <laughs> and so, but one of the things that I thought was so important is that after a time where people become so afraid of everything, and they're saying that horror is having a resurgence, and I think it's because of why people buy horror all the time, and that it's a safe fear. It's a safe place to be scared. No matter what kind of horror appeals to you, it's a place where you can revisit things in your life, your childhood, your adulthood, that, you know, shook you in some kind of bad way, but you can do it through a book, a movie, a poem, whatever, and it feels safe to have that emotion. So I think that is a lot of purpose in that way, and that's why we write it, and that's why people read it and watch it. There's an old saying, it's from a Western, it might be from... uh shame where he's talking about being in a dangerous situation and the kid says were you afraid and he said yeah he goes but being afraid is the only time when you can be brave i think horror does that all the time even thinking about rosemary's baby which is an old movie if you think in terms of movies and i have never forgotten that movie because the idea of being female and being feeling manipulated by everything around you and then of course they add in the super evil um, that made an impact on me. It really did. You mentioned going to StokerCon, and the Bram Stoker Award is one of the most prestigious awards, especially for a writer of your genres. And I want to know, Linda, when you got your first of the five Stokers that you've been awarded, what do you think you were being recognized for? I was stunned when I won the first Stoker because I was up against people who I admired when I was sending my strange, dark poetry out. I would send it to places they were published in. And I was speechless, driven to tears and speechlessness. <laughs> so, and it still impacts me many times about that, the same thing, because I'm writing from my own feeling and reactions to the world, to everything. So it just made me realize that my shadow work was touching people. And that was a big awakening with the first Stoker. And from then on, it still is an awakening to me when people connect. Can you tell us something about your mother's influence on you as a writer and creator? She was everything. I was the oldest of nine, and she had me when she was 17. And from then on, my life became taking care of all the ones that she wasn't carrying. Because if you got nine kids, you're pregnant all the time. <laughs> so I became second mama. But... We didn't have books in the house until years later someone gave us one of those big giant dictionaries, which is where I fell in love with words. But she told stories to us every night. And sometimes if we didn't have electricity or we didn't have heat and we were all huddled together and she would tell us these wonderful fantasy, you know, little edgy around the edge. And she would put us in the stories and she always knew how to just end it just right before we had to go to bed so we could wake up. I mean, that was like, 
I want to do that. <laughs> so at some point, I became the storyteller. I was very shocked when I went to school and found out that not everybody's mother told stories they made up. <laughs> so, but she was, um, she was my um, everything for telling stories and a great supporter of my writing, huge supporter. First time I, I took her, well, she was at the, the first Stoker that I won, and I have a picture on my wall with that. It's unforgettable. What is a stone that's unturned for you at this point in your career? Oh, something I'm just stepping into now. I avoided writing novels my entire career because I was afraid, since I am an organic writer, that I would start it and never get out. I would just write one novel for 20 years. And I couldn't have that because I like seeing my name in print. (laughs) So I was like, no. And then after I won the Stoker for How to Recognize the Demon has Become My Your Friend, Rick Hodela and Joe Lansdale cornered me afterwards when everyone's sitting around drinking and ah, they cornered me and they were like, Joe's like, Linda, why haven't you written a novel? And I was like, because I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared I won't finish it. <laughs> and he said, well, you, you know how to write stories. You write great stories. So just write a novel where every chapter is a story. And that was like, what? <laughs> I could do that. It took me a while to really come around to doing it, but I just finished my first novel, which is uh, the first in a trilogy. A friend of mine said, Linda, so you went from poems and short stories to a trilogy? I was like, I, I just follow where my imagination goes. I don't calculate it out. And it's hard sci-fi, which is also going to be a surprise to some people who don't know my background. I mean, I started at Carnegie Mellon as a physics major, Math and science were always my thing. I graduated with BS in math, and I've been crazy for quantum physics forever. So there's a lot of that in there. I even throw infinite realities into my Black Panther story. It, it kind of falls through all of them. So that's the new thing. And we'll see how that goes. I'm excited. <laughs> you told me before that the book, How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend, that that is one of your most popular works. It's something that a lot of different people seem to be drawn to. Does that say that a lot of us are uh, carrying on friendships with demons? I think that is a question you have to ask for yourself. I know personally that I am. (laughs) And much better to be friends with them than not. (laughs) Well, I think we all carry some kind of something inside of us. (laughs) That infectious laugh belongs to poet and author Linda D. Addison. Her debut novel is still on the way, but her most recent appearance is a sonnet titled Not From My Heart Do I Your Judgment Pluck. It's in the anthology Shakespeare Unleashed. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is helping young writers realize the potential of bringing their stories to life. Next, Andrew the Rapper follows a fifth grade student's desire to inspire others. But like every young musician, he needs to overcome barriers and prove to himself that he can achieve greatness, both in his heart and in the eyes of his peers. The following music was written by a fifth grader, but performed and produced by an artist called The Current Luke. One day there was a kid named Andrew, and he wanna be a rapper, but he wanna be appropriate for his school, cause he wants to rap for his class. 
He wants the rap for his class. He wants the rap for his class. One day there was a kid named Andrew, and he wanted to be a rapper. Three bullies came up to Andrew when he was trying to write a song, and the bullies took his paper and they threw it away. Hey, what's wrong with you? Then Andrew told the teacher, and the bully and his friends got in trouble. Then Andrew went home, started to write again. One day there was a kid named Andrew, and he wanted to be a rapper, but he wanted to be appropriate for his school 'cause he wants the rap for his class. He wants the rap for his class. He wants the rap for his class. He wants to be a rapper. He 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 went to school the next day. Walking to school was reading in his mind, and a bully came up behind him and he asked, "Why, why did you tell on me? 'Cause and what is that paper? Nothing." And they ran to class, and a bully said, "It's Andrew Ran. You will never be a rapper or a singer." And a few hours later, they went to lunch, and a bully said. Since you can rap, do it then. Do what? Rap. Okay. Uh. Okay. You know what? I got my friends. We are a team, and the whole world will be better without bullies. Without bullies. Yeah, I got my friends. We are a team, and the whole world will be better without bullies. Without bullies. And the teachers heard Andrew, and all of the kids too. Started to cheer, Andrew. One day there was a kid named Andrew, and he really was a rapper, and he really was appropriate for his school, and he really raps for his class. He really raps for his class. He really raps for his class. One day there was a kid named Andrew, and he really was a rapper. That was Andrew the Rapper, written by a fifth grader, with music performed and produced by the current Luke, a member of the team at Stories That Soar. You can watch the accompanying video on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories to the Magic Box Story Portal now at literacyconnects.org. Listen for more Stories That Soar every month on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.